Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. And I'm happy to get to share the Dhamma with you on this last night of our retreat together. So let's start by just sitting together for a little bit.
So what might happen if there was no bell? Not meaning that you sat here forever, but that if with the same attitude of presence and listening that you have in meditation, you brought that to whatever comes next. So in this case, it could be uh, listening to a Dhamma talk. But very soon it'll be shifting away from the retreat center tomorrow and going back into your life. Which, unless you live in another retreat center, will be uh, very different. So I'm going to reflect with you uh, tonight a little bit about this um, transition and some thoughts about how we can be in these different seeming worlds and how maybe uh, it's kind of the same thing, too. So sometimes when people ask questions about this, on retreat, they talk about like when I go back to the uh, real world, and it always seems funny because uh, sometimes you're the most present when you are on retreat. So the idea of like, well, what is the real world? You know, the world in which I live in uh, my head and wander around lost in thought all the time, or <laughs> a world in which. I'm actually paying much more attention and have a greater clarity and uh, presence. Or maybe it's neither. You know, maybe the world itself is uh, something to be questioned. So there's a famous uh, line from the Buddhist suttas, a question that uh, uh, someone comes to ask the Buddha, And he says, a tangle within, a tangle without. People in this generation are entangled in a tangle. Gotham, I ask you this, who can untangle this tangle? So we can maybe relate to this right now. It can feel like, oh, the world is in this tangle. Like so much turmoil and and chaos. And and then also uh, looking within or looking at the reactions of people that we're also in some turmoil and tangle. And how can we come, come free of this? So this question was asked uh, 2,600 years ago. So first it can actually give us some comfort that uh, you know, at different times, in many centuries, over many different countries and lands and shifting borders, uh, people have had this same question, the same feeling. And the Buddha basically points him to uh, practice this questioner. So he says, uh, a person established in virtue who is discerning, who develops a discernment of mind, a practitioner who is ardent and astute, this one can untangle this tangle. Those whose passion, aversion, and ignorance have faded away, the greed, hatred, and delusion. The arhats, are those who are fully awakened, for them the tangles untangled. 
And then he continues a little bit more cryptically, where name and form, along with perception of form, totally stop without trace. That's where the tangle is cut. And then this one, as in so many of these stories uh, where he's heard this, someone hears something from the Buddha, says, magnificent, magnificent. (laughs) Just as if he were to place upright what was overturned, to reveal what was hidden, to show the way to one who was lost, or to carry a lamp into the darkness so that those with eyes can see, in the same way as Master Gautama made the Dhamma clear. I go to the Blessed One for refuge, to the Dhamma and the community of practitioners. So if, in case you didn't uh, have the same experience from hearing me read that, and uh, it was a little cryptic, we can uh, review well, what is it we've been doing here and how can this carry over. And Dory uh, gave the brief formulation of the Buddha's instructions or teachings, which is from the Dhammapada. So in case you forget all the many, many instructions we've given, uh, the many lists that there are and so on, it's actually pretty simple. So this is... a uh, from the Dhammapada in chapter 14, verse 183. So avoid unwholesome action, do what is good, and purify your mind. So that's a pretty good formula. So avoid doing things that are unskillful, do what is good or skillful, engage in what's skillful, and purify your mind. And we've laid really good foundations here Uh, this week. So I also felt like uh, we've been entangled in a tangle externally, internally. And I remember seeing, you know, when this retreat was uh, set up, the timing of it, feeling actually very good about us being together in this way during this time. Like in some ways, this is like a training ground. So training ground for... uh, all of those who are going out into the world in all the many different situations you'll be in, in all of your family lives, in all of your occupations, uh, in all of the different physical locations you'll be in. And I trust that the inner work that we've done here will also inform your seeming outer work in ways that are beneficial. And the transition can take some engagement, some kind of uh, tuning in. There's some uh, translation maybe that can help. So the tools that we have uh, developed here of paying attention with detail to what's happening in the body, what's happening in the mind, getting more facility with reading the different emotions, intentions, moods, that pass through us like weather patterns. So this helps with the knowing what action is going to be taken. And I'll recall us back also to something we did in the beginning of the retreat, which was to uh, take the training precepts together on the first night, which probably seems so, so long ago. So all of those uh, vows and those trainings are ones also that can carry over into your life. And in some ways they're uh, elaborations of these three very simple statements.
So there are some ways the uh, actions that will come from an awakened being, from the awakened mind. And also as we're on our way to that place, to awakening, to full awakening, uh, they can be guides for us to pay attention to our hearts, to our minds, and to our actions. So I'll review them and also uh, maybe elaborate on them um, with you as we consider moving into the larger world. So the first one is around, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings, killing breathing beings, from destroying life. And then on a more refined level also, to avoid harming living beings. So not just killing life, but also harming in some way. And then on an even more refined level, it could be, how can I protect life? Is there a way that I can support and protect those around us? On each of these, there's the individual way of looking at it. And then we can consider also the collective. So these forces of greed, of hatred, of delusion that underlie when we take actions that are counter to these precepts are those that also are uh, informing certain aspects of our world uh, that we can also consider part of our purview as uh, practitioners, as people living with integrity. So for example, in the collective, uh, there are ways in which our society engages in harm. Uh, of course, in physical harm, in killing, literally through war, uh, through the mechanisms of uh, racism, of xenophobia, of Islamophobia, of direct harm to living beings in so many different ways. So we can actually engage also in the collective to work against this. So some people had asked some questions about, uh, you know, do um, those who practice this Buddhist path engage in the world and in what way and uh, among different uh, organizations or collective actions, um, one is the the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which is a group that I have been on the board of in the past. And uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship went to uh, the White House um, last year, I believe it was, and took with them three signs. And one of them says, uh, U.S. militarism breeds violence, not safety. I vow to work for peace and freedom. The second one says, the karma of slavery is heavy. I vow to work for racial justice. And the third one says, the whole earth is my true body. I vow to work for climate justice. So here we can extrapolate, you know, what would be an individual uh, action, individual intentions, and think, like, what are vows that I can take also that recognize the whole, you know, that recognize the way in which uh, society works and in which our financial engagements, our uh, engagements as a nation, as communities, also have ways of harming or supporting life. So the second one, I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not freely offered, so stealing. 
So extrapolations of that in the broader world include looking at ways in which there's consumerism almost as a religion in our society. There's ways in which our country also possesses things, seems to take ownership of things that don't belong. And also in which there is an aggregation of wealth uh, among a very small number of people that is increasing and which causes great harm to large numbers. So every year uh, Oxfam puts out a list analysis of uh, the richest to the poorest people. And last year uh, their analysis said that the 62 richest people on the planet had as much wealth as the bottom 50%. So the 62 wealthiest people on the planet held as much wealth as 3.6 billion people. This year, the news is worse, that uh, there's eight men who have as much wealth as the bottom 50%. So eight human beings have as much wealth as 3.6 billion people. So it's, it's sobering, right? And I mean, in a, in a world in which many people don't have enough food to eat, don't have shelter, uh, basic needs for health care uh, are not met. So these are conditions of the world that need our attention desperately. So the third training is, I undertake the training to refrain from harm with my sexuality. So that's the layperson's version. Uh, here in the retreat, you've been following celibacy, of course. Um, but as you leave, you'll be released from that. And with each of these, there's, uh, they're kind of short formulations, and so that means we have to explore, like, what does that actually mean for us in a particular situation? So the Buddha did speak about specific examples of not coercing others to have sex with you, uh, not having sex with people who are underage, to honor the promises that we ourselves have made and that others have made. But other than that, there's a lot of nuance to exploring this for ourselves in our lives. And it takes bringing our presence and our good hearts and our best intentions to see what's the appropriate thing to do, what's skillful in this situation or that situation. In the collective also, there's plenty of work to be done here too. There's a lot of exploitation in the world, uh, particularly of women and children, but in general, uh, so much harm that happens from sexual exploitation, uh, from sex trafficking, including in the Bay Area, for those of us from uh, these parts. You know. uh, there's an area in uh, Oakland on uh, International Boulevard, uh, which is an area in which um, there's a lot of sex trafficking of underage girls. And I found this out some years ago from going to a fundraiser for an organization called Bante Sarai, which works with uh, at-risk Cambodian uh, young women. And apparently the, among the busiest times there is early morning. Uh, in very early morning, you can see a lot of young girls outside uh, on a long international boulevard who are uh, going to be picked up and many of them 
13, 14 years old. Uh, so it's, it's a problem that's like right under our nose and uh, like so painful to see this, to understand like, yeah, we as a society are not able to protect these very vulnerable people, very young, vulnerable people in a wealthy and uh, you know, seemingly civilized world. So delusion underlies all of this, you know, and, and as I say these things, it's, it's, it could be hitting you quite hard to feel this, you know, to hear all of these, these aspects of the pain that's going on in the world. So you've taken retreat and uh, you've been away from the news, so you've been shielded from some of these, this information. As you can imagine, the world has continued along, uh, unfortunately, uh, in the similar trajectory uh, which is both good and bad, you know, both inspiring and heartbreaking and devastating. You know. And so many of these things have also been going on for a long time. So, you know, along the lines of uh, militarism also, many of us might be surprised to know that the U.S. has actually been bombing uh, seven countries over the last number of years. 26,000 bombs. So that's about three bombs an hour, 24 hours a day in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, Syria. So in case there's a setup of sort of like, oh, the past was good and now is bad, like there have been problems all along, you know. It's, and it's helpful for us to recognize this, to see as clearly as we can what's going on. And it's helpful to take heart, too. So uh, in exposing you to these difficult realities of what's happening, it's easy to get bogged down, you know, to feel very uh, disheartened by it. So among the things that that can help is really to tune in also to moments and uh, examples of hope, of joy. So on Saturday before coming here on the retreat, um, I was uh, cleaning up in my house and um, I was going to go to the um, women's march that was in um, San Francisco and Oakland. Um, but someone had told me you could listen to the speeches that were going on in D.C., which was already under, underway because of the time zones. Right? So when I turned it on, the first person I heard sounded like a little kid. Uh, and I was like, what's going on? It's like six, like really little kid speaking, but speaking with such force and eloquence. I was amazed. Like, who is this? Yeah. Uh, so I actually went to look, and it's this young girl called Sophie Cruz, who is six years old, uh, who is addressing the crowds of hundreds of thousands of people uh, in English and in Spanish, uh, without notes. I'll add. <laughs> And uh, Sophie, you might have heard of her before, because when she was five, she actually um, squirmed her way through the barriers in Washington, D.C. when the Pope was visiting uh, to hand over a letter to the Pope uh, asking him to help her uh, to uh, help her family because her parents are undocumented from Mexico. And she is worried about um, them not being able to stay in the country, and what will happen to her uh, if this happens. And in that incident, the, the um, 
you know, security people like tried to sweep her away and then the Pope uh, summoned her and gave her a kiss and took her a letter and uh, she became famous and I guess now she goes and speaks too, so. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know, people say like, oh, maybe she's coached or this or that. And, um, but her parents said that she herself had some, um, like, awakening. She had this idea that she wanted to travel to see the Pope and uh, they told her that um, they couldn't. They were in L.A. They couldn't travel and then she noticed also that they were scared. The parents were scared when uh, police were around or, you know, certain situations. And she, was, she seems like a really bright kid. So she asked, like, what's going on? And, you know, they explained, like, oh, uh, we don't have these papers. And so then she said, well, let's buy the papers. Can we buy the papers? You know. So then they explained, well, we can't, can't really do that. And her father apparently works in a, a factory, a galvanizing metal factory, um, but she insisted she wanted to go and see the Pope, and so then uh, through their church group, they ended up um, going there. And uh, in D.C. on Saturday, she was there with her mom and her dad and her little sister, who must be about three or so. And here's what uh, Sophie was saying. We are here together making a chain of love to protect our families. Let us fight with love, faith, and courage so our families will not be destroyed. I want to tell the children not to be afraid because we are not alone. There are still many people that have their hearts filled with love. Let's keep together and fight for the rights. And then she started chanting, Si se puede, and led this march of, I think, almost a million people in, in this chant. It's amazing. It's very, very inspiring. So this is a beautiful sentiment also about uh, creating a chain of love to protect. Yeah. And uh, for me, I've been an activist in my life since I was young and then also was drawn to doing a lot of uh, Dhamma practice uh, when I was also quite young. And now kind of move between those worlds and uh, it still is very much in my heart that there is important work to be done uh, in the world. So many of my friends who have continued uh, purely in the kind of direction of um, social justice advocacy uh, have moved into positions of um, significant influence in these ways. And I do some work still sometimes in um, consulting with organizations or in coaching, but I spend most of my time here like teaching uh, Dhamma. But to me it feels like, okay, if I can feel like this is also helping in some way, it's partly that you are all links in this chain of love. So all of your practice, all of what you learn, all of the work that you do from this day forward is going to be informed by what you have learned here, by the insights that you've had, by the sensitivity you've been able to access, to tune in to your own suffering and the suffering of others. And none of us is going to do a perfect job. So the training that we take, particularly in the sitting meditation, is uh, a form of courage, I would say. 
it's in some ways a very brave thing to do to say, let me sit here for 45 minutes, for half an hour, for an hour, and let me do my best to meet whatever it is that shows up with openness, with presence, and to see clearly what this is. And that could be an itch, it could be uh, simply breathing, it could be memories of the past, it could be your neighbor sniffling and fidgeting incessantly. It could be your own mind plaguing you with fears, with catastrophes that never happened, with dreams, with fantasies, with seductive thoughts. I think Dory also told the story of uh, you know the Buddha's uh, night of awakening here and the statue of the hand touching the ground where he sits like this and he's assailed first by the armies of Mara of all the beautiful things he could be doing rather than sitting here. Yeah. And you probably have been assailed by these armies too, right? Like, oh, I could be watching, having all kinds of entertainment or eating the food I want or this or that. Right? But Buddha sat steady through that army. And then the next one, the army that would have terrorized him off his seat. The scariest things they could imagine. And he also sat steady. He remained grounded. And then the last army was the army of doubt. Who do you think you are? Who are you to be on this quest for awakening? And this moment is commemorated in this uh, gesture. He touches the ground. So the earth itself bears witness to my right to be here, my right for awakening. This is all of our birthright. So I want you to remember this too. You know, when you go back into your lives and the forces of Mara will still be there, internally and externally. It could be you're in some difficult meeting. It could be that you're out protesting something. It could be that you're in a conflict in family life. It could be in some larger venue that you find these forces coming. So remember, your training in sitting here has been a training in courageous presence, developing so many good qualities of heart and mind that we didn't even know that we had. So regardless of how you might have judged your retreat or particular sitting, all of you have developed these. A collectedness, focus, sense of presence, a sense of equanimity or balance, cultivating the intention to put this energy and effort through. So I want to talk about two other um, aspects that were mentioned, two other dimensions that maybe can uh, help in tuning in as we shift into the world too. I think we've practiced with the metta here and we've practiced with compassion. 
Um, the last two of the Brahma Viharas, which Kate mentioned yesterday, are of joy and of equanimity. So these will be um, helpful friends for you as you leave the retreat. So as you go back into the world, it can be very tiring, this tangle, the internal tangle, the external tangle. And it's very good to notice and allow yourself to be heartened, to be strengthened um, by joy. So by joy that comes to you through your own experiences, through joy that might be there in very simple circumstances of seeing something in nature, even the joy that can come from uh, sitting quietly, doing nothing or walking back and forth. But also you can tune into the joy that's around you. So tune into the fact that when anyone else is happy, you can actually be happy for them. It's very important, particularly in times in which you feel like you're beleaguered, uh, your community's under assault, or the values that you hold are not being reflected in the world. Make sure that you tune into joy also. So I noticed this uh, in the march too. Uh, So in this protest march on Saturday, uh, there were many people with many, many different signs. Some of you were probably holding them. (laughs) And even if you didn't go to this march, it's uh, very possible that you saw news stories with different signs. And it was interesting to notice for me, like what was my reaction to different signs uh, that I saw? And it, it helped me also to tune into this um, this idea of this, like, or do what's wholesome and avoid the unwholesome. Right? Um, because in all forms of protest, uh, that discernment is not there, shall we say. <laughs> uh, and I know for people who are uh, activists, people who are engaged in the world uh, in this way, it can really be a recipe for... Um, burnout and for kind of the corrosion of your own heart if you allow yourself to hang out too much in the place of aversion or hatred of the other. So I noticed some signs that were just, you know, completely like down with the other, right? Like we hate them, they're bad, right? Something like that. And it's totally understandable that that sentiment is there, It's not that if that sentiment arises in your own heart or if you yourself find yourself painting a sign to that effect uh, that you need to judge yourself negatively. But notice, particularly when you're in a sensitive space, what does it feel like you know, to have that sentiment? And then what does it feel like when there's a more positive sentiment? So our actions can be fueled from um, hatred of the other, from uh, anger, uh, a kind of... Um, corrosive rage, if you will. Or even uh, from anger, there can be some uh, clarity and the energy can be transformed into kind of a cleaner, clearer motivation of standing in your values, standing in what's important to you. So here's among the signs that were inspiring to me. Uh, We are the daughters of the witches you couldn't kill. 
Healthcare is a human right. Black lives matter. A men of quality support women's equality. We stand with our Muslim brothers and sisters. Uh, girls just want to have fundamental rights. Right? <laughs> and this is what democracy looks like. So there were so many signs, graphic signs, verbal signs, and you know, in some ways that's like some form of, of speech. And uh, I noticed that there were some that I laughed at in the moment, but then there was a way in which it felt uh, it felt corrosive a little, you know. So one of them, for example, it was a little bit clever, but then I felt myself cringe. It was like, uh, choke on your silver spoon, Trump, right? <laughs> there was a few other words before Trump, but we'll put it that way, right? <laughs> and uh, it was on a huge sheet, so uh, there was something funny about the fact that people took the time to like paint a giant bed sheet with this, too. You know, like it took a lot of effort to, uh, to put that on there. Uh, and I, I noticed, like, I laughed at first, but then I could feel, like, there's something unwholesome about this, about actually the, uh, even the wishing harm, even in this, this humorous way. You know. So this is related to the practice you did this uh, afternoon, perhaps, of the, you know, how do we wish well to those who we oppose? Uh, whoever that is in your life. You know, if it's someone who you live near, or if it's a political figure, uh, if it's... Uh, someone that you're close to, someone at work. You know. And why should we? Right? Why even do that? So the reasons go back to the reasons that we practice. And really, like, what is the possibilities of this entire path? And where this is leading is to some kind of happiness, well-being, uh, contentment that is beyond all changing circumstance. And that's a radical kind of freedom. You know, that's a radical kind of freedom to have, to aspire towards and to achieve. The other kind of well-being, which is a bit more mundane, right, is um, kind of based on an underlying uh, strategy, you could say, that's like, I will be happy as long as things go my way. Like I'll be happy as long as uh, people say things to me that suit me. I'll be happy as long as uh, everybody I vote for uh, gets elected. I'll be happy when all of my sports teams win. Uh, <laughs> I'll be happy when uh, everyone acts to me exactly how I want them to act to me in exactly the time that I want them to act towards me in that way. So when I say it like that, it's kind of funny because it's a very fragile recipe, right, for well-being. Uh, but when we have this idea like, oh, the problem is outside, you know, I'll be happy once that person changes or uh, when these circumstances changes, right? What we're basically acting from is, is some uh, wrong view, you could say, that's like, um, that's the way to happiness in this world. The way to happiness is when all circumstances line up in some way that is pleasing to me. And as we have uh, recognized through this practice, when everything is always changing and it's not in your control, that is a very fragile place to put your happiness. Like it's never going to be 
uh, everything comes up your way. Or if it is for one blessed moment, like it's going to fall apart (laughs) very, very quickly immediately after. So that can bring us to the uh, other of these Brahma-viharas, which is equanimity. Which to me is actually one of the most mature of the spiritual states. It's one of the most mature uh, mind states that I think we can cultivate as human beings. The most difficult and complex too. It's even hard sometimes just to understand, like what is this? And I remember also for a long time not even knowing if that's something that seemed good. You know, especially as someone who like want to see change in the world. It's like, oh, it seems like if you're a quantumist, are you just going to be like, oh, yeah, whatever. You know, I'm, I'm cool. I'm like a quantumist. It's no big deal. You know? <laughs> that one is actually the near enemy of equanimity. So with these different states, there's something that looks like it, it like can masquerade as it, but it's not that. And that's actually indifference. So indifference is the near enemy to equanimity. So equanimity is when we're actually deeply connected as opposed to disconnected and also able to stay steady, to uh, be not knocked around by the changing circumstances. So equanimity is um, some recognition that uh, this is how things are right now. That doesn't mean that you don't want to act to change them, but you recognize like, okay, this is the state of things right now. So sometimes when it's difficult for us, uh, we might say things like, uh, like that did not just happen. Right? You did not just say that. Right? But actually they did just say that. <laughs> and that did just happen. <laughs> so the energy of kind of friction that goes into needing to deny or turn away, you know, it's like all of that, like what if we actually were able to capture all of that resistance and channel that into positive action, you know, into seeing clearly, into creative sign making, into, uh, yeah, acts of uh, bringing people together, uh, acts of joyful, uh, creative, positive resistance. So things are as they are. This is one phrase that can help sometimes to connect, to recognize what's happening. Also recognizing that uh, this moment is exactly how it is right now. And to recognize impermanence, to recognize that things are changing. We can sometimes wish it directly towards ourselves, Basically like, may I have equanimity, or in some way, uh, may my heart be at ease with the changing conditions of life. So you recognize, like, ah, uh, kind of knocked around by this, like, okay, may I, may I be at ease with this? May I be able to be steady with this as best I can? Right. So you can imagine, like, with the, if your mind is like a dog, you know, the dog, like, starts to charge, and you're like, stay, stay. Stay, starts to charge again, like, stay, good dog, good dog. This is if you have a good relationship with dogs, you could use that metaphor. (laughs) Another uh, 
reflection for equanimity is just recognizing like the change, the way things change. So um, there's a, a list uh, of the worldly wins, eight worldly wins. So pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame, disrepute, all of these arise and pass away. So it's just that, yeah, all our life is these changing, shifting, kaleidoscopic movements. In our uh, practice, we can gain this kind of freedom sometimes from stepping out of the ideas that we have about something and and really dropping into the direct experience. So, for example, when we were with uh, body pain, the mind might have been going like, uh, I have to move my leg, this is going to kill me, ring the bell, you know, stuff like that, right? (laughs) Um, But if we're able to actually see that as a story and then drop into the direct experience of the sensations, then we might be able to feel it just for what it is. It's vibrating, it's tingling, it's heat, it's cold, it's wiggling, it's piercing, whatever it is, right, coming, going. And sometimes there can be some actual okayness within even that intensity. So this is the thing, if we can actually be with each moment just as it is, internally, externally, uh, it's possible for there to be that kind of uh, freedom. So with vipassana practice, this uh, formal technical practice, we're kind of going in uh, and gaining access to these like deep level of uh, piercing through the appearance of things in one way. Another way that this works with dhamma practice can actually be with reflecting a kind of wide angle. So, for example, this idea, you know, pleasure, pain, gain, loss, praise and blame, fame, disrepute, all come and go. Like, for me, even this, uh, reflecting on this moment that we can get very caught in our story, you know, about this historical moment, about what's happening for us personally or politically, and when you can extend to a larger historical view, even geological, maybe, you know, like vast areas of time, you can kind of see this in a different perspective that doesn't mean you don't want to do something about it, but it can actually give a little bit of ease you know, and see this as one of the turns, some of the churning that happens. I went to an um, exhibit in the Asian Art Museum a couple years ago that was about um, the Khmer uh, Empire. And... I admit, I never was that interested in history when I was in school, so I didn't pay that much attention in school. But now I'm more interested in, um, in seeing this. One of the things that was really intriguing to me was the language that they used to describe their empire. And it was really extremely parallel to the language that we use here in America to describe like our place in the world. And uh, you know, really this idea of like exceptionalism and... Uh, we're the best, and uh, like this is going to last forever, and God smiles on us. And you know, it's like seeing this with this now long past empire, <laughs> you know, uh, it's like, oh, yeah, there's perspective. Like, this is a, some ideas that, that people have about how things are, but that's not necessarily how they are. So similarly, I think, uh, you know, tuning into different um, historical eras and how things have gone always from this way to that way, this way to that way, turning. 
Now it doesn't turn just on its own, like certainly it requires the actions and the acts of wholesome, skillful, from those who can bring those forth, and the avoidance of the unskillful, unwholesome. But it's totally possible. So just as in your mind, during that sitting when there's pain, there may have been this thought, it's going to be like this forever. Recognize when in your life you have that thought about circumstances, like it's going to be like this forever, and recognize it's just a thought. It's definitely not going to be like this forever. And the final one about equanimity that I'll share with you is kind of more a personal one about um, recognizing that each of us are on our own journey. Each of us has uh, choices to make in our lives. We take actions. We plant seeds of cultivating our hearts and minds. And then we bear the fruit of those uh, intentions, those seeds. And it's something very poignant that uh, we can't actually do that for each other. We can support each other, we can love each other, we can do as much as we can to create the conditions for uh, each other's success and well-being. But there's a way in which each of us is on our own journey. Even those closest to you, even those who have been born from your own body, you immediately do not have control over them and their lives. And yet we can engage in uh, cultivating acts of generosity and care for each other, uh, building strong communities and relationships, continuing to care for our bodies and our minds through Dhamma practice, through exercise, through healthy eating, We can connect uh, collectively with those who have shared values uh, for wanting to see good things in the world, for wanting to move things in the direction of protecting those who are vulnerable. And we can do our best and love ourselves and forgive ourselves when we get tired, when we lose heart, take a break, and then step back in. So I thank you for all of your good practice this week. And I feel hopeful and happy to know that there are 100 human beings who want to do this for this time and who are going to be going out into the world uh, with those purified hearts and doing your best in all of the arenas that you're in, in all of the places you live, in all of the communities that you're in. So thank you. I can sit for a moment. Can connect again to your own good heart.
can connect to the sense of your body that's alive. Miraculously. And this breath that can continue to energize you for practice, for life, for love, for wisdom. May the efforts from our practice here contribute to the development of a society that is one based on love, on protection, generosity, and wisdom. And may we all have the courage to play our part in bringing that into being. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.